Hello, everyone. I hope you're enjoying this wonderful conference, the Aspirational Healthcare Conference, and welcome to this session called Massively Powerful Primary Care. I am the moderator for today's discussion. My name is Dr. Eric Weaver. I am the Executive Director of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, a nonprofit peer learning collaborative that is focused on industry transition in this journey to value-based care. And today I have my colleagues with me, Dr. Maria Shaw, Chief Operating Officer for ACOSMD, and Dr. Mark Tomasulo, CEO and founder of Peak Med Life Centers. Well, Dr. Shaw and Dr. Tomasulo, uh, I thought maybe you could provide a brief introduction of your backgrounds for our uh, attendees today. Dr. Shaw, why don't you go first? Hi, my name is Maria Shaw. I'm the uh, Chief Operating Officer at ACOS MD. Uh, ACOS MD is a virtual primary care organization, um, and I am a physician by training. I have about 10 years of managed care experience. I was formerly CMO, uh, Chief Medical Officer at various TPAs and health plan organizations, and I also have some background in pharmaceutical industry. Uh, ACOSMG is a uh, healthcare uh, technology organization. Um, we started off with a telemedicine platform, evolved into the workers' compensation place, um, and we started a workers' compensation program that was fully virtual, uh, one of the first in the nation, um, evolved that into our virtual primary care, which is our main focus today. Um, we serve the employer market in um, as a virtual primary care provider with the physician kind of as the quarterback of healthcare as well as having a care team surrounding that physician. And Dr. Tomasulo, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself as well? Well, um, Dr. Weaver, thank you very much for the introduction and um, really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about um, aspirational primary care and, and what, that, what that means uh, to the uh, employers, especially in the self-funded space. So essentially just a little bit of background about me. I'm a family physician by training, uh, spent a lot of time uh, really understanding and perfecting the craft of primary care over a long period of time and, and uh, unfortunately got very burnt out. Uh, in the period of primary care, seeing 20 or 30 patients a day. And I guess about 10 years ago, I, I decided at some point, either things have to change um, or I'm going to find a different profession and uh, stumbled upon a, a foundational primary care model that was kind of a grassroots movement called direct primary care. And at that time, there was very, very few primary care practices, one that were private um, and not institutional or owned by hospital systems. But um, very few practices that literally said, uh, we're going to do this differently and a little bit better, and we're not going to use insurance to, to pay for it. And so um, that's when I really started understanding the value and the power of, uh, as a physician, what we can do in the healthcare space. And so essentially what direct primary care is, is a foundation of you know, the healthcare system, right? It's primary care. It's a quarterback of all things um, inside of the health system. But more importantly, it's really goes back to the days of primary care being cradle to grave medicine, where we delivered babies and we took care of uh, grandparents. And um, today, you know, it's a little different. We don't deliver babies as much in, in uh, metropolitan areas as primary care. We rely on the obstetricians to do that. But Essentially, what we wanted to do is figure a way to go back to seeing six to eight patients a day by design and change the economic model to make it viable for a physician to have longevity and happiness practicing medicine again. And 
um, direct primary care really afforded that platform that allowed a physician to go back to practicing medicine, be extraordinarily autonomous in the process of that, um, and then uh, reinsert the relationship of a patient doctor, um, one from a clinical standpoint and two from a financial standpoint. And so um, my interests as a physician are completely aligned with the patient, um, whether it's managing their chronic diseases or getting into true prevention and wellness, um, as well as financially. Uh, I have to provide a valuable service for a member that's paying directly for services to us. Um, and, uh, and it just changes the way that you practice medicine. It changes how you manage a patient. It changes how you refer patients out of a system. It changes how you write a prescription without understanding the cost. Um, it really makes the physicians be a consumer of healthcare uh, on behalf of the patient. And so the foundation of direct primary care has been an, extraordinarily plat an extraordinary platform that really empowered physicians to uh, take back uh, primary care in a traditional way that it was 30, 40 years ago, uh, and really change the economic model so that uh, you can be successful financially in order to see six or eight patients, so we don't see 30 patients a day, uh, and take ownership of our patients, which changes the fundamental way that we navigate a patient through the healthcare system. So when I started uh, PeakMed um, about eight years ago, I really started it from the foundation of um, giving primary care back to uh, physicians myself uh, and doing it in a way that allowed us to really manage patients in a, in a much more efficient way, um, a much more holistic way. Um, and the premise behind PeakMed at that point was we started on the individual side of, uh, of consumerism. So patients can walk off the street, join our practice for a very low monthly cost, um, and then have a relationship and access to a physician 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, because it didn't um, require us to re be reimbursed by the insurance companies, um, we can communicate with patients and manage patients uh, from their house on video conferences, technology, text messages, phone calls, in-office visits for you know, zero co-pays and zero deductibles in the world of high deductible health plans. Like none of that applied. And the whole premise behind PeakMed was to eliminate as many transactions as possible for the patient. We then started getting into the space of larger employers um, and uh, working with consultants and brokers and really understanding how to plan design, really looking at self-funded companies, level funded companies, and understanding the value of what good solid primary care does to the total cost of care and mitigating your stop loss claims, mitigating your, your transactions through your TPAs and your administrative costs. And, uh, you know, fast forward to today, you know, we're an eight year old company. Uh, we manage about 300, uh, 250 to 300 companies. Um, I think about 70 of those companies are self-insured companies. So we have large companies that might have 2,000 employees and some companies that have, you know, as, as small as five, but most of the self-insured companies are around 150 to 2,000 employees. And what we found over the last couple of years is that the, uh, the mechanism of primary care has afforded uh, a cost curve um, shift 
when it comes to total cost of care. So things like emergency rooms, urgent care visits, specialist visits, um, referrals through the system, navigating patients through case management, all of those things now get internalized by us inside of PeakMed. Um, and we started looking at claims data and we started looking at understanding how um, the total cost of care, meaning hospitalizations, readmissions, 30-day readmissions, uh, ER avoidance, um, all of those things started to change. And we typically see with our clients today about a 20% total cost of care reduction. So we have employers that have, you know, six, $7 million um, premium spends, and we're typically saving them anywhere between one and $2 million on that, on that spend by embedding PeakMed into it. And um, there's a tremendous amount of uh, structure that goes into coordinating a plan, empowering the plan to actually work properly um, with primary care as the foundation. And so I think the opportunity uh, is really shifting away from uh, what we traditionally have called health care uh, and health insurance into a much more consumer-centric uh, position that is truly um, shifted by the employer. I think the employer has started to figure out that they pay the bills and they actually should have some say in how those bills get paid. And I think this type of platform allows them and affords them the transparency and flexibility to understand that if they just shift some money around, that there's a huge opportunity for savings as well as providing a much better uh, benefit for their employees, which actually creates retention for their current employees. It creates a recruitment tool so you can uh, compete in a space for the same employee by giving them a richer benefit. And it's worked extraordinarily well throughout the years. Well, thank you so much for your time today, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation on massively powerful primary care. And I thought a great place to start our conversation today would be on relationship-based health care. I mean, aspirational health care is really about a relationship-based system, having superior outcomes for half the price. And, you know, we've been discussing over the last day the NUCA system of care in Alaska as a exemplar for aspirational health care and really signifying what is the one of the best health care systems in the world. So as we look at this um, uh, relationship-based health care model, I wanted to really focus in on primary care. Can you both provide your perspective on this movement uh, towards relationship-based healthcare? Uh, so at ACOS, our main um, goal is actually um, to have each patient have a dedicated physician, a dedicated care navigator, a dedicated nurse. And, you know, relationships these days with our primary care providers, you're going in once or twice a year, 10 or 15 minutes. You don't really have that time to spend with the patient to really get to know them. Our program is SDOH-based, so we have these social determinants of health built into our platform as far as HRAs. Uh, we gather all that information at the beginning, and we're able to really deep dive into that patient's life. Uh, once you kind of have that uh, care team at your disposal, kind of in your pocket, we become the first people that a patient reach out to. So the case, the care navigator really becomes kind of your friend. Um, and you're able to build that relationship on a daily basis, a weekly basis, just depending on your level of complexity with the 
backhand knowledge that knowing that there's a physician at your disposal at any time. So again, a lot of the times when uh, patients are going into these clinics or into the um, into the office for a visit, um, white coat syndrome comes into play. You have the you know kind of the barrier of time trying to get um, all of your um, you know your issues out on the table during that 15 minute visit. And really, again, as physicians, the burnout and the you know trying to get through all the patients um, in the day and trying to uh, get through them on a timely manner, um, they don't really get time to spend with the actual patients. So with direct primary care or virtual primary care in our um, in our world, uh, we really get take the time to get the note to patients. Every single patient is onboarded at, um, at the at the onset of registration. Uh, we take the time to do a full comprehensive health risk assessment, kind of get all the medical social history, and then every single patient uh, does have that ability to meet their primary care provider, um, you know, at the beginning without even having a reason to um, have a visit. So they get to have put a face to the name and then they also get to meet their care team. Now in between, um, you know, transportation requests or if there's any referrals or care navigation that needs to occur, that's where our care navigators come into play um, and they're able to kind of quarterback that type of uh, delivery, um, help people get their labs and their imaging and their results and their appointments set up for them, things basically that, you know, a typical consumer these days does not know how to do or how to coordinate and lay health insurance on top of that and benefits um, questions, that's where, you know, most people tend to get lost. And that's why the cost of healthcare is rising these days is because, you know, consumers will tend to go either where uh, what's most close to them or by word of mouth, not really knowing what the hidden costs behind those are. Um, so I believe, you know, with the, with the movement into direct primary care or virtual primary care, um, the provider, the physician is really able to take ownership of that patient and steer them into high quality affordable health care. Well, I think um, relationship-based health care uh, is really the fundamental foundation of what primary care is supposed to be, right? So this is what we're trying to move to today, understanding the faults of what we've done in the past, uh, really start at the core of a relationship. And so it's how do you rebuild uh, and refoster that relationship and trust between a patient and a physician? And um, really having the patient understand that, you know, we're here for them. Um, and it's extraordinarily unadulterated, uh, and there shouldn't be any ulterior motives or agendas inside of that relationship. I mean, think about it from the standpoint of having a relationship with a spouse or a relationship with a really good friend. Um, it wouldn't be a great relationship when you feel like you're being taken advantage of. And so I think it's extraordinarily important to understand that the the way that you restore relationships in the healthcare space is you have to regain that trust um, with patients. And I think one of the biggest drivers behind the lack of trust with patients and physicians revolve around the economics. You know, the patients are always wondering, well, is he doing this or is she doing this because they're getting paid more or they're just ordering that because they're making more money on that, or they're writing this really expensive prescription because uh, they're getting some kind of money from the, from the pharmaceutical industry. I think those are all legitimate questions because unfortunately they've happened in the past. Um, so I think really part of the restoration of the patient-doctor relationship um, has to be transparency and ownership, right? Acknowledge, yes, this 
this stuff happened in the past and we know that that's a, it's not sustainable and it's not how we're going to move forward in, in the healthcare space. I also think that when you think through the transition of primary care, uh, primary care used to be an independent practice. Uh, it was physicians that were running their own business that were um, providing a service to an individual and the individual had a choice to go to that primary care physician. They didn't have a relationship with them. They would choose to go somewhere else. I think during the industrialization of healthcare, uh, primary care practices were acquired, um, which probably is a topic all in of itself in terms of why they were acquired or what happened to primary care. But the vast majority of primary care practices today are owned by institutional facilities, either extraordinarily large uh, hospital systems that own the primary care. So they own the front side of medicine all the way to the back end of medicine, uh, you know, from the primary care to the referral to the surgery to the hospitalization and then back through the system again. Um, that's not a very efficient process and it's certainly not a way to uh, create trust in, in, in that process. And so I think part of the, um, part of the, the understanding on how to restore the patient uh, doctor uh, relationship is really having primary care understand the value of independence um, and autonomy. And I think you have to do that through potentially trying to encourage more family physicians to get into the field of medicine as an entrepreneur, um, as a business owner. And I think direct primary care is the pathway to allow that to happen because you change the economic model to make it um, viable as well as um, relationship-based. And so I think it's the number one um, reason that physicians go into primary care. We know from the beginning we're not going to be paid like an orthopedic surgeon. So we've already acknowledged that. And we went into primary care to be a relationship-based provider. I think you then need to have the platform that fosters a relationship with a patient. And the only way you do that is to spend a lot of time, just like a relationship with a spouse or a relationship with a friend, you need time to cultivate that trust and relationship. And direct primary care allows the platform for a physician to see their patients for an hour, a half hour. Let them call on the phone, let your patients text you, let your patients email you, um, give them access to you as frequently as they want. And you'll find that trust um, starts to become the foundation of primary care. And with that trust, you will change the relationship-based um, uh, outcomes that we're looking for. Wonderful response. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And, you know, let's you know, take the conversation a little further. And, you know, I'm thinking about the comments that uh, legendary investor Warren Buffett has said about rising healthcare costs. And he says that rising healthcare costs, not the tax system, is the number one problem that American businesses face. And he said if you go back to 1960 or thereabout, and corporate taxes were about 4% of GDP, and now they're about 2% of GDP. At that time, healthcare was 5% of GDP, and now it's 17% of GDP and growing. And in Buffett's view, and you know, he says this is playing a bigger role in hindering business activity in the economy, healthcare. And you know, he has that famous quote, you know, medical costs are the tapeworm of American economic competitiveness. So at this aspirational healthcare conference, we really want to provide 
solutions for employers tackling these healthcare costs. And, and one of those solutions is direct primary care. In the DPC model, it redirects healthcare from fragmented care sites such as inpatient and outpatient settings, specialist office, ER and urgent care clinics, and it focuses on providing care in a more optimized primary care setting. And in the longer term, DPC or direct primary care can deliver cost savings to employers by diagnosing, treating efficiently, and managing the health of a covered population. So can you both today discuss how employers should be approaching these DPC models to provide improved health outcomes, patient engagement, and patient satisfaction for their employees? Definitely. So traditionally, um, in the corporate world, corporate wellness programs, um, you know, had a really big uh, impact on employer groups um, at, alongside their health insurance. So what we've tried to do is take um, the virtual primary care model and lay it alongside or on top of the actual health plan. Um, and again, that's where you kind of have that concierge approach where you have the care team um, really at your disposal, the, the physician at your disposal, as well as any type of benefit questions. So when you have the ability to kind of steer from the onset or have that immediate intervention with a patient, you're able to take them to places where they should be going, either within the health plan or from a medical quality perspective, um, trying to take those patients and steer them to locations that are, again, better for them outcome-wise as well as uh, cost-wise. Um, when the employer groups, especially um, these days in the self-funded um, the self-funded industry, uh, where the the direct cost or the direct um, you know uh, um, the price of the actual healthcare procedures are hitting the employer books you know directly, um, that's where we come into play as far as the you know the back end uh, care team is to be able to steer them within that health plan to the high quality lower cost providers as well as getting the right care at the right time um, because you know as we all know um, it may be the most expensive procedure but you know go to a lower quality uh, facility or a lower quality um, you know uh, institution that tends to actually in the longer run be a more expensive either procedure or uh, you know outcome. So that's where directed to the right place with the right quality at the right time. Um, that's where you know you can kind of impact all three, both the quality, the outcomes, as well as the, the, the cost of the actual procedure. So employer groups, you know, especially again in the self-funded model, um, laying us on top of their existing health plan, you know, you could realize about 20-25% off of, uh, you know, previous claims year histories just by adding the um, the immediate impact of both the nurse triage line as well as the um, uh, having a provider at your beck and call, preventing those, you know, urgent care visits as well as the, um, you know, uh, emergency room visits. You know, again, in a post-COVID world, the DPC model um, is again, it's one of the biggest pushes in healthcare. It's one of the biggest uh, movements in healthcare, and it's a movement, it's a, you know, motion in the right direction. However, in a post-COVID world, again, that's where you see the telemedicine worlds colliding with uh, direct primary care, and I think moving more towards a flexible model, um, both with a virtual space as well as brick-and-mortar clinics, um, having the ability to be flexible for patients is going to be a very big um, you know, requirement here um, with patients becoming more comfortable seeing their um, providers in a, in a virtual space, as well as the ability to uh, kind of get into patients' homes. So one of our, um, again, one of our, you know, um, 
uh, biggest um, you know goals as an organization is to be able to serve the patient anywhere they are. So we have at-home monitoring devices, remote patient monitoring, we do chronic care management. Um, again, they could be virtual or in person, um, but our biggest um, you know, our biggest achievement is that we have our own healthcare platform. So the, the, the technology platform becomes a big reason that we're able to do all of this. Um, you know, you have a, uh, a brick-and-mortar clinic or even many brick-and-mortar clinics, you're, you're limited to, you know, the, the surrounding areas. Uh, with, you know, the larger employer groups that have uh, decentralized employees or traveling employees or part-time variable employees, um, that's where ACOS kind of comes in and we're able to serve any type of client anywhere, whether they're traveling, whether they're at home, whether they want their medications delivered to them, um, you know, having a fully virtual model as well as the ability to go to local urgent cares or go to a local space where they're, um, you know, they may have our kiosks and they're able to have those um, artificial reality, um, the, artif the artificial intelligence augmented reality type of visits, um, you know, that's where you have to become very flexible for patient care because, again, you know, as everyone knows, not all patients are the same, not the care models are the same, um, but we have to kind of meet the patient where they are. So that's where ACOS is trying to bring uh, technology and patient care um, and combine them into one um, concierge, you know, product for the self-funded market. So I think when it comes to employers uh, and direct primary care, uh, there is a uh, there's a natural fit that happens, um, but it takes some education, and it actually takes um, uh, really understanding how direct primary care uh, interfaces with your insurance plan. Um, what we do know is uh, once you get over 50 employees in a in a company, you're mandated to offer a benefit of health insurance. What we know is um, as, those employer, uh, as those employers get larger, the more likelihood that they move into a level funded or a self-funded arrangement um, for their company, so they're actually uh, participating in some of the savings, is typically what occurs in a larger organization. What direct primary care does, in a really simple way of understanding it, uh, PeakMed's whole responsibility in the healthcare space is to eliminate transactions from ever occurring. Um, in the fee-for-service world, the whole reason for fee-for-service is to create as many transactions as you possibly can. And so let me just explain that for a second. In a fee-for-service environment where direct primary care doesn't exist, a doctor sees a patient, they then bill the insurance company, and then the insurance company gives them, gives them a payment for that visit. If the employer is a self-funded uh, client, they're essentially paying the bill. So if, you know, if the physician sees the patient, they charge you know, $150, maybe the payer negotiated that rate to $100 or the TPA negotiated to $100, and then the TPA takes $100 and gives it to the doctor. But they took $100 of the employer's money. In, under that situation, depending on how the doctor bills, how the doctor codes, how complex the patient was, that $100 appointment could turn into a $200 appointment or a $300 appointment. And they're unfortunately incentivized by creating more and more transactions. So let's order your labs today, 
I'll collect your $20 copay and I'll bill your insurance hundred bucks for this visit today. Let me follow, let me have you come back in two weeks and we'll go over your labs, right? Another $20 copay, another $100 visit. Um, and we constantly do this all day long. That's how uh, fee-for-service healthcare systems stay in business. They have to create transactions. Direct primary care, um, we've taken that variable cost. You know, so in the fee-for-service environment, if you saw four different physicians, depending on how well they negotiate their rates, one might get 100, one might get 150, one might get 110. So there's an, a variable cost to the employer, and they have no idea what that variable cost is until after the transaction occurs. Direct primary care, what we do is we remove that variable cost altogether, and we create a fixed capitated cost, right? So direct primary care is a monthly membership approach. So let's just say that membership is under $100 for the month, which means the physician is no longer incentivized to create as many transactions as possible because we've already been paid. The value of direct primary care now is to eliminate as many of those transactions for the employer because if I eliminate all of those transactions, I save the employer money. And if I'm saving the employer money, that's a good thing. Secondly, if I'm providing the service to the patient and the patient isn't paying for seeing the physician because there's no co-pays, that's a win for the employee. And if I wanted to see the employee 10 times this month, that's the prerogative of the doctor-patient relationship. And what happens in direct primary care is that relationship gets unadulterated. So if I want to see the patient 10 times, it's irrelevant whether or not we do that in the office. If I pick up a phone, if I text them, or if I email them. So compare the fee for service. I order your labs. I charge your insurance company. They pay me. I then follow the patient up two weeks later in office. I get their copay. I bill the insurance. They give me money. In this arrangement, I see the patient. Doesn't cost them a penny. I've already been paid by the, by the employer, so I order the labs. And then when I get the labs two weeks later, I can actually call the patient. I've already been paid, so I don't need to create a transaction. And we can discuss the labs. If I want to spend an hour with the patient discussing their health and wellness and trying to come up with a game plan, it's free of charge. There's no more transactions. So what we have found um, on the employer side is that we start managing the money that the employer spends in healthcare in a much different way. Primary care, when we have an hour to spend with a patient, we can actually get to the root cause of people's chronic conditions, right? Just because you have diabetes and you're not taking your medications, in a fee-for-service world, that would be called a non-compliant patient. So what do you have to do? You've got to get more people involved, get case management involved, get um, uh, people to kind of reach out to the patient in a way to bring them back into the system to create a transaction. Well, if under that environment, there's only five or 10 minutes to speak with the patient, it's not a very good experience. So in our environment, when you have an hour to spend with a patient, you actually get to educate them, tell them about their disease, understand maybe they're not taking their medications because they're depressed and they actually need some behavioral health services. So let's figure out how to manage all of these things in a much different way. And so when you look at the economics 
of how direct primary care pairs with an employer, the savings are enormous. The benefit to the employee is unlike anything you've ever experienced before. And so now the employer actually gets to provide a concierge, and I hate that word to be quite honest with you, but it's, it's understandable by a lot of people. So the employee gets to have this concierge level of care. The employer gets to have a fixed cost that they can budget for year over year. And our job as that fixed cost is to save more money than what the employer spent. And we've proven this out for the last eight years. Um, and it works extraordinarily well, all the way to the point that the payers actually understand how much value we provide and they start helping offset the employer's cost to embed peak med into their plan designs because they know that we save that much money. So it's, there is a natural fit between employers and direct primary care that is, we've just scratched the surface of this. Well, I guess that concludes our uh, presentation for today on massively powerful primary care. Thank you, Dr. Maria Shaw and Dr. Mark Tomasulo for such an engaging, insightful conversation today. Hello, everyone. I, I think I might be, as I'm looking at the screen, you're certainly welcome to take your uh, mute buttons off. The, uh, the next 15 or 20 minutes, the purpose of the live session is to have some continued conversation about what we just learned, what we just listened to, and some of the information that we've heard earlier from our keynote speaker. So I'm inviting you to open up your mics. Uh, you're certainly welcome to open up your uh, video screens as well if you are available to do so. Otherwise, we'll just look at your smiling faces or your little icons, <laughs> and you're welcome to do that too. So it's, it's great to be here with all of you. My name is Bill Anderson. Uh, I've been involved with the Aspirational Health Group for quite some time. I come from our, our industry, our health industry. Uh, Mark, great to see you. It's been a lot of years. <laughs> uh, we, uh, I've been in the uh, health insurance industry now. I'm chuckling. Uh, my friends and kids are giving me a little bit of interesting feedback in that come this March, it'll be four decades. So we've been a long time looking at things change in the industry. And I, and I thought it just open a question. And Mark, I thought you spoke to this quickly or, or very well, actually. Um, you know, relevant to, to primary care and relevant to some of the things that the NUCA system has discovered that the responsibility of people, the, respons the shared responsibility of me, my family, my, my friends, others, uh, has changed. Um, and maybe it has never changed. We just think that, it, that we're just experiencing the, the influence of this change, that there are a lot of years that guys like me that have been brokers uh, in the industry and building health plans uh, were motivating transactional plans uh, and, and not trying to beat up on any carrier per se, but we were if we were selling a Blues product or United or Cigna or Aetna, and it was a benefit in a box and PPO networks or HMO networks were the flavor of the day. And we plugged that into the plan and there were all of these structured CPT codes and ICD-10s. And when somebody has X service, they're having a baby or they're delivering or they're, or they're having a knee surgery. 
uh, all whole list of services are just transactionally rendered and costs just hit the plan like crazy with no accountability to the necessity and or the potential waste. So I'd like to propose a question to all of you and open it up for discussion if you'd like to. Um, how do you see the kinds of things that you're doing and all of you come from different spaces of the industry, the, the health industry, how do you see yourselves working to, let's call it eliminate waste in the system? Mark, we, we heard from you, and if nobody else pops in, I'd love to direct this at you too. Uh, but any of the rest of you, if you'd like to jump in, how do you see what you do, or how do you see we can work better in the industry to eliminate that waste and be more responsible? Any thoughts on anybody's minds? Mark, I'm going to go to you. We'll jump in so we don't lose time. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is um, understanding that you have to you have to change the platform in which providers practice medicine um, in order to eliminate some of the waste and abuse inside of the system. And it's not a dysfunction of the physician; it's a dysfunction of the system. Meaning that if I only have five or ten minutes to manage you and talk to you. We're going to refer you out to a lot of different places. We're going to order a bunch of labs, a bunch of imaging, uh, a bunch of specialty care for the purposes of time. I don't have the time to manage those things, and I have a medical legal liability to address them. So the best way to address them is to order a bunch of things and send you to a bunch of specialists or to incorporate a lot of other things in healthcare that maybe I could take care of by myself. Um, so you have, to, you have to change the foundation of how we practice medicine, and that's the platform of what direct primary care affords um, for the physician. And then that translates into a tremendous amount of savings from waste and abuse that the employers are paying for um, in a self-funded arrangement. Uh, I, think, I think as, uh, as I've spent time in the industry and have introduced a number of organizations. Congratulations, by the way, with the, the amazing things that you guys are doing. Um, as I've introduced in organizations into self-funded health plans, I've seen the real benefits of people being able to uh, have access to that primary care, to guide them uh, into uh, navigation of what do I do next? How do I do it? Uh, where do I go? Um, what do I really need? Uh, what is really necessary for my care? And, and I've watched that change. And I think our, our younger generations are really looking to us to provide some solutions that I think are different than they've ever been before. It's almost like, I don't know what you think about this. It's almost like the, the healthcare delivery model of the past, the traditional, as Daryl refers to it, um, you know, you've got people standing at the bottom of the cliff and the health carriers of and, and even some of the doctors and providers standing at the bottom of that metaphorical cliff saying, jump, jump, jump. Uh, we'll put you back together after you break into a million pieces. And we will. That's one great thing about our American medical system. You will get put back together. That's awesome. But all you have to worry about is your deductible co-insurance copay and network. And that's it. Don't worry about how much it costs. We got that. That's all taken care of. We'll just, you just worry about the deductible. What if someone were standing at the top of that cliff saying, wait, 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 don't jump. Let's, let's take care of things up here as much as we can. And God forbid, if you do happen to fall and break into a million pieces, then we'll, figure, we'll put you back together. But let's not motivate the jump constantly to feed an economic system that 
just continues to get bigger and, and to an earlier point um, to our facilitator, uh, eat up 17% of the gross national product. It's a, it's a, it's a machine that has to be altered. So we're seeing companies, we're starting to see companies that are popping up uh, and have been functioning for quite some time all over the place now. Uh, you know, you guys have been at this, did I hear that for eight years now? It seems like yesterday, but you've been at it for a long time. I know there's others uh, that are doing amazing things. Um, Redirect Healthcare, who I spend a tremendous amount of my, my time with, has a number of direct primary care offices and surgical centers in, in the Phoenix area that they that's where they started their mark uh, 26 years ago, actually, and then uh, have developed into an interesting delivery model now, uh, offering opportunities around the country. I know much like you. I think there are many organizations that are doing that, and I, I applaud the primary care world, and I think this motivates, and I'd love your take on this. How, how long have you been How long have you been a primary care doc now? How many years has it been? You, you've been at this for a long time. Yeah, I've been at it for, I don't know, 15, 15, 20 years, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think do you think that this kind of a model will motivate young doctors as they're thinking about their future to be motivated to come back in as a primary care doctor and get more excited about what tomorrow looks like? Yeah, I think what you're finding is you have a lot of uh, you have a lot of young physicians that are coming into the space that actually want to have a work-life balance, to be quite honest with you. And work-life balance doesn't really work well in an institutional hospital type of setting. Um, and so DPC kind of creates a platform that's, you know, a much more kinder, kinder, gentler place that you have autonomy in as a physician. So it's, it's very um, enticing for young physicians and physicians that have been in the career for 10, 15 years that are just burnt out of institutional. So I, this type of setting uh, allows physicians to remain autonomous and have control over their profession, I think, at a much higher level than they would in an institution where they're just, um, you know, for the lack of better terms, they're just a cog in the wheel at the end of the day. And um, I always said, uh, I always, I, I've said that, you know, physicians in the current environment are probably in today's environment where hospitals own the majority of practices and the idea of a private practice doesn't exist very much. Um, physicians are probably the most highly educated, highly qualified factory worker that we have in this country. Um, and that's a terrible place for a physician to be. So there's a couple of different ways and this platform does allow physicians to enter a different space to do things differently. And, and I just wanted to, you know, on a totally separate note Bill, from the physician side of it, the biggest thing to take away from a self-funded company um, is to understand that you need a strategy. Primary care um, is a strategy conversation. It is not a line item on a claims invoice or a bill when you're looking at reports from your payers and you see that you're paying 5% in your premium to primary care. Um, DPC provides a strategy for an employer that helps the employer mitigate the second or third largest P&L line on their book. Yep. So if you don't have somebody that is helping you navigate one of your top three P&Ls in your business, 
you need to rethink how you're structuring a strategy around healthcare. Because I'll tell you, your HR department, your CFO, your CEO, they don't know healthcare in a way that creates a strategy in terms of how do you build a plan design? How do you re-incentivize patients or employees? How do you start changing how we pay for healthcare? So you really need someone that understands strategy on the self-funded space in order to help. Well, I, I would agree. I would agree with you in that in that capacity. And uh, you know, I, I think those are some those are some really important points. And and for those of you that are on the call, again, regardless of where you are, whether you're on the on the insurance side, the pay, the the provider side, here's what we know. This subject uh, is significant enough that as we look across America, we have an average uh, cost of approximately $11,000 a year per employee head uh, for healthcare. The companies that are introducing strategies, like Mark was just referring to, and like many of us understand, um, are reducing that $11,000 figure significantly. Uh, significantly because it, it's a guiding post to help people make a difference. So we're getting close to wrap up time. Any other thoughts, anything on anybody's minds that have uh, uh, come in? Any, any other additions or questions you'd like to discuss while we're all here together? Yeah, Bill, uh, this is Martin Davis. Uh, hey, Martin. Yeah, that, that 11K number, uh, according to Price Warehouse Coopers, half of what Americans spend on healthcare provides no patient value. So our delta is about you know fifty five hundred six thousand dollars a year of waste per per employee in a self funded plan, and uh, you know DPC done correctly like uh, Dr. Thomas Ulla has just laid out, uh, you know he's knocked out twenty percent of that that you know fifty five hundred six thousand right there. There's still an enormous amount of waste, you know, and it, yeah. it can be substantially reduced, which is what this whole conference is about. So, well, they're, if yeah, I, they're. Oh, I'm sorry, Bill. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't, didn't mean to cut I was, you off. I was going to say, Martin. Um, so, to your point, um, what I'll tell you is, is we have a great case study that that literally looked at this. And so, when you look at that eleven thousand dollar number, when we built this into a client, they've been a client of ours for probably five years now. We started with them. They're about a thousand life employer group. They started with a per employee per year cost of about, I think it was uh, $10,600 per employee mm -hmm. per year. By year two, that cost was $5,200. Wow. So yeah, the, it's a strategy and you have to understand that DPC or primary care, when it's done properly, has an impact on hospitalizations, ER, yeah. urgent care, advanced imaging, labs, medication, 30-day readmissions, behavioral health. It's so much beyond primary care yeah. that you really need to have somebody that understands how does this thing pair with your health plan and how do you get a consultant or broker that understands how to manage those um those plan designs in order to drive the savings that we know are capable. Yeah, well, we, 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 excuse me, 85% of what Americans spend on healthcare is to treat conditions resulting from poor lifestyles. And I guarantee you, you identify whatever the problem is quickly with the level of, of close, closeness that you develop with your patients. And you, that's what you focus on. And your results are 
amazing, you know, but that was, well, the, yeah, the, the other the other thing, and we'll just kind of wrap up with this thought to both of your points, the thing that we're starting to see, and while this session is mainly relevant to direct primary care, the power of a the power of a solid direct primary care strategy also then influences uh, the orthopedic surgeon who has been managed, who, who's got a client and it's a combined client between direct primary care and the person who's dealing with pain and needs to have C4 through seven fused. And how does that orthopedic interact with that direct primary care to make sure that the handoffs are clean, that they're getting the right information, that the direct primary care after the surgery and or as it's approaching it can handle this. So it this touches so many pieces. This has been a great session, folks. Um, we are, as you know, running on a time schedule. So we're going to sign off now. Thank you for coming to this one. Uh, there are others, as you know, going on. And so I'm going to say... Thank you and uh, come back to you or, or allow you to go on with the session and we'll come back to you another time. Thank you. I'd just like to invite everybody. We're just going to take another 15 or 20 minutes and we, we are being recorded um, so that you can go back and listen to some of these sessions. And, um, you know, it's it being that we had a number of people on our last one um, and just a couple of us here on this one, I, I think this could be really fun for, uh, the three of us, uh, Martin Davis. It's nice to have you, do, Martin. Do you and Mark know each other? Uh, we don't. Okay. Um, you, Pierce, know, <laughs> you you know you know who Mark is because you've been you've been listening to him, Doctor Mark. Uh, maybe just share just quickly. Tell us a little bit about you. I, I know you've been the, around the industry right now. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Bill Anderson. Uh, I, and I've been asked to just do some facilitation here for the aspirational health, uh, healthcare uh, conference that we're having. I've, I've been uh, a broker in the industry for nearly 40 years, be designing self-funded uh, plans for employers all over the country, uh, and am in love with this model of uh, the introduction of direct primary care or the more aggressive play of a direct primary care inside of plans. So uh, they asked me to do this because I've been jumping up and down on this for 25 years. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm all in. So Mark, tell us a little bit about you quickly. And that will be helpful for the, for those of us that are listening in on the recording. And then I'd like to just throw a couple questions out to you too. Uh, well, I tell you, I've been in sales uh, basically my whole career. I uh, graduated from University of North Carolina in 1979. About six years ago, uh, I was introduced to Daryl Moon, uh, CEO of Orion. Uh, by uh, one of his employees and uh, was just totally knocked, knocked over by what he does. Uh, you know, we talked in the earlier session about, and we all know this, the biggest healthcare problem in the United States is obesity. I mean, Americans, we're, we're incredibly blessed. We're incredibly uh, wealthy compared to the rest of the world. And uh, our healthcare problems are, are basically self-generated for most people. And uh, Daryl's just created what is a, a true wellness program, and it, it's individually oriented to try to get, help people make the changes that they know they need to make in their lives to be healthier. And, and, and Mark certainly is, is, is doing that in direct primary care. And anyway, I, I started, uh, Daryl was kind enough to let me uh, market the services of Orion and, and was also kind enough to introduce me to some other providers with uh, proprietary technology. And I've, I've really 
uh, falling in love. I, I just, my biggest regret in life is I didn't get in healthcare in some aspect out of school. I, I just never thought about it. Nobody in my family is involved in it. It's just not something I ever considered. And uh, yeah, it's my calling. And uh, I've also uh, run for public office here in, in, in Charlotte, and I'm always interested in public policy. And, uh, you know, has all this relates to, you know, the welfare of our country. Uh, it's, it's, if, if we don't solve the healthcare problem, if we don't knock the two trillion in, in healthcare waste that we're spending as a nation out of the equation soon, given all the other mistakes we're making fiscally, in my opinion, we're gonna, we're, we, are, we are robbing future generations and it's wrong. And, and healthcare is a huge part of that. And uh, so it's just very exciting to be uh, involved with people that are, are seeking to change and, and have the capability to do it. And, you know, Mark, what you are doing, what Daryl's doing, what Nuka's doing, uh, should be the standard of care for healthcare delivery, not only in the United States, but around the world. And, uh, you know, to, to, to actually uh, know people and be able to work with people that have actually gone in and done what you've been able to accomplish is incredibly exciting and rewarding. And, and I'm just very grateful that I have this opportunity to even speak with you folks. So that's my story. So thank you, uh, Martin. Appreciate it. And Mark, maybe that gives you a little bit more uh, intro to Martin's passion and his thoughts. Um, here's the question, and I, I'd like to maybe just stay really simple and stay maybe focused on this one. Um, I know your answers will go to some unique places, so we'll have some fun with it. And then we're going to keep this session short so that we can move on with the rest of the sessions of the day, let you have some uh, personal time as well in between those. Um, but here's the question. And, and all of us kind of face it in our own unique way. So I'll ask it in the way that I hear it the most. My day is full of a lot of interaction with um, employers. Uh, uh, and they're varied from sizes from 50 employees to 5,000 employees. I don't get into the jumbos like Lee does, but, but I, I'm hovering in an area that many of us see. It's small business America for the most part, right? Um. I'm, I eat lunch with those guys. I play golf with those guys. I interact with those folks. Um, and they always are asking the question, what is the one thing that I can do that is the most significant thing I can do to make a difference in my healthcare today? What do I do? What do I do first? I'll let you each tackle it. Let's have a, let's have a fun minute with it. Mark, what, what do you think? If, if, you, if you had that elevator speech while, or while you're sitting playing golf with a buddy, what is the one most important thing I can do first? On an individual basis or as an owner of a company? Oh, he's, he's a CEO. He's asking the question. Here's a CEO asking the question, what do I do for my company? I'm getting, uh, I'm getting killed. I don't know what to do. I've turned everything over to my HR director or I haven't. It doesn't really, let's not, let's just assume that he, he really wants to know and answer the question. What's the first most important thing I do? Uh, you need to have a healthcare strategy. And if you don't have a consultant or a broker that understands what I just described, then you probably need to entertain a conversation with myself and some other team members to see what your options are. There's no cost. There's no, there's, there's nothing no strings attached. It's literally, let us look at your processes that you have in place. Let us look at your plans. Let us look at your spend. Let's look at your claims history. Let's look at all of the things that you have currently in place. And then let's figure out how we can optimize those. And what I would tell you is if you do it properly, 
and you just open your mind to something other than what you've been told for the last 20 years, there's the opportunity to change to save about 20 to 30% of your total cost of healthcare spend today. And if that interests you, great. If it doesn't, let's go, you know, play whole nine. I don't, because it's, I could care less anymore to try to convince people on how this works or why it works, because you have to be participating in that process to really understand it. What I can tell you is if you don't like what I say to you, let me give you the contact of 300 plus companies that we take care of. And you can talk to them about what a healthcare strategy looks like. And um, I, so I think, you know, to that point, Bill, it's uh, most of what we do is too good to be true. Doesn't make any logical sense. How is it even possible that you guys can save? Yeah. If I'm spending $20 million a year on my plan, how can you save me $6 million and give me better quality, better care, and better access? Like, that doesn't make any logical sense to me. Um, and when I have that conversation and that comment, my response is, uh, Cigna, Blue Cross, Anthem, and Aetna, they all each make about $4 billion a quarter and they're publicly traded companies. I don't know where your incentives lie, but their incentives lie on profitability, not in saving you money. Great answer. Martin? I would tell them, uh, if you will trust me, I will guarantee you that I can set up a health system for you that will uh, reduce your current spend 25%. And you got to put yourself. You got to. You got to put this in my hands, and and we'll sign agreements, and we'll get it done. And you know, at the end of the day, that's what he wants to hear from anybody else. He's he's purchasing a good or service from. It's you know, what will this do for me? Can you guarantee any of this? And and I work with a number of providers that you put them all together, and actually, he's he's going to end up saving more like forty percent, probably, yeah. and, and maybe even a little more than that. But this can be done. It's there, you know, but you've got to just say, look, you're being your, your current relationship with your broker or whoever it is, is not delivering this to you because they don't know how, or they don't want to. And they're basically incentivized not to want to. I will guarantee you that I can set up a, a healthcare delivery system for your employees. that will save you a minimum of 25%, but you've got to let me do it. And you've got to tell your HR people that you will assist him. And if you don't, I'm going to find some new HR people. It's got to be that blunt because that's the only way to break through all this crap. It really is. I mean, it's got to be that, that certain and it, and it can be done. And, and Mark is doing it. I mean, I, I would tell you, I would tell you both and Bill, I don't know, you know, if you know, like, so we, we are in 15 States. We have 160 affiliate locations that we manage and we have, hundreds of employers, tens of thousands of, of members. So this is not like, um, well, theoretically, it sounds awesome. Um, and hypothetically, what a utopia would look like. Um, this is, listen, we're past that phase. We're doing this. We have case studies. We have cohort studies. We have claims data. We have every type of ROI report you want to look at. But the goal is, you know, I guess the question is, is are you ready to change what you're currently doing? And if the answer is no, we don't want to disrupt anybody. Yeah. Then great. Keep, 
keep getting your 15% year over year increases and come talk to us when you're ready to change. Yeah. Well, you, you, you guys have both answered this in a unique way and I'm just going to say this and then I'm going to bring it around to a close and leave, leave it with the exclamation point that I think we've all made or you two have made. And, I, and I'll just say to my own way, my best friend um, passed through Alcoa corporation, which is one of the major corporations in America was a senior executive became C-suite for um, another major steel company not long after that, president and then later CEO, 18,000 employees at that time. Prior to both of those, he was with an oil and gas company out of Colorado years and years ago as he came out of college that had 700 employees. Um, so he's been through self-funding, He's, he's been through a move away from fully insured to self-funding and then total or partial self-funding, complete self-funded for two group in two groups. Um, and now has moved to Arizona and has taken over a new corporation that will likely be about 5,000 employees when it hits its full speed. Currently fully insured with four or 500 lives uh, about to convert to a partial self-funded plan. Now, during that history, he's known me the whole time. And in two of those organizations, I helped him create some really uh, 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 fun stuff. And I came to him, or when he moved to Arizona, he said, Bill, he called me, he said, I want to build the ultimate health plan. Ultimate. Like, what would that look like? My new company's cool. We're doing yeah. stuff nobody's done. We want the health plan to be just like the rest of the company. What would that look like? Can we go build that? You know what the first question I asked him was, to your point, to the two of you, to your point exactly, Mark, are you finally open to hiring a consultant slash broker that's 100% performance driven by compensation? And, and, uh, and he said, Bill, it's about time, and he said, as a CEO of an organization like like I'm about that I'm building, um, he said, I will run as fast as I can to a performance-driven system. He said, I have paid millions and millions and millions of dollars of revenue, millions of dollars of broker fees and consulting fees to the big guys and have no more creative input than I could have created myself. You've taught me a lot of crazy things over the years and things I can do to help manage costs, et cetera. Uh, but we need to go to a new level. And he said, I'm all over it. He said, if you are willing to go 100% performance-based, we can pick a baseline, but anything up from that, everything we save and we stay below those thresholds of traditional costs uh, in America and my, my staff are healthy and happy. He said, I I'm all in. And he said, I think every, and he said, what I'd like to do is as we create that model, he said, I'd like to find every other employer in America that's doing that. And I think we ought to band together and scream and that scream the story as loud as we can from every radio, TV, and uh, social media, internet space that we can to help other employers see the vision. And yeah. I, I think having said that, I think we're kind of all saying the same thing. If, okay. if the employer is ready, and in this case, and many cases they are, uh, we ought to be we ought to be screaming that story as loud as we can. 
thousand percent. There's a hey, Bill and Martin. Just out of curiosity, do you guys um, would you mind sharing your contact information? Because I'd love to kind of continue some conversations moving forward. Sure. Yeah. And I I I sent you a test text. Did you get it? Um, if you haven't changed your cell phone number, you got my cell still. If this was great message on the aspirational health conference breakout. The eight hundred one number. That's me. Okay, perfect. Uh, well, I, I still had it still had you in my phone. Um, <laughs> and Martin, I Martin, I think you've got mine, but my email uh, mark is bill.anderson and Anderson's with an S E N at redirecthealth.com. Yeah, you know, I was just Mark, I was thinking about your comment about how much you're able to save uh, employers. And, you know, if you, you know, you got a, a thousand uh, life group you're working with, you save them, you know, five, six million dollars a year. For the vast majority of, of businesses in the United States, that represents to the bottom line to, to generate five, six million bucks, you're looking at 50 to 100 million dollars in revenue. You know, and it's just such a mind boggling, huge number that you are saving these guys, it's unreal. And oh. the thing is, it's employer employer plans have, have deformed everything so much. But I was I've got a, a good buddy that works for a really large national company. I mean, a really large one. And he thinks they've got great health care because he only has to pay you know thirty four bucks a month for, for for family coverage. So the company pays you know everything else. I said, look, man. Your, your company is an organic entity. You know, you've got you know, 250,000 employees that generate enough money for your employer to buy the healthcare that you've got. Your, if, if we were able to cut out the waste in, in US healthcare, there's about 160 million Americans getting their care through their employer. We're, we're projecting 2 trillion in waste. That's $13,000 a year that you could be taking home with you instead of paying into instead of going into the health plan, 13,000 a year, you know, for every American worker almost. I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling. And people don't understand, you know, it's just, oh. Well, they, they, there's a, there's a lot of things they can learn from this conference, which is why we're taping it. So I, so I'm going to bring it around to a close. Everybody, Britta, we didn't want to leave you out. If you have anything you'd like to add, come off mute and jump in quick. We'd love to sit if, if you'd like, um, uh, and, uh, if that, if not, it's all, it's okay too. We're glad you're here and, uh, appreciate everybody's, uh, inclusion, everybody's answers. Thanks guys. Um, and, and, uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Uh, we'll be doing some breakout, uh, sessions again tomorrow. I know there's a few things left today, so, uh, thanks for all your contribution and we will see you as we come around again. Thank yeah. you. See you, Martin. Hey. Yes, sir. I'll be in touch. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our live portion of this session. You can see we've got some uh, nice visitors. We, uh, if you want to click on, turn your mute and your mute off or on, off, I guess, so that you can participate. <laughs> I know what I'm trying to say. And, uh, and your videos, if you'd like to see us. There we go. We've got Dave Berg from Redirect. Glad to have you, Dave. And, hey, Bill. Uh, I see some others that may want to remain with their little icons. Either way, we're happy to be here. So, so this session or continued um, session is 
to continue to talk about direct primary care. And uh, Martin uh, has been with us before. Um, Dave, I don't know that you know Martin uh, Davis. He lives, out in the he lives out in the lovely land of Charlotte um, uh, and has been around the industry for a long, long time, more on the design side, the broker side, the creative side. And, uh, and Martin, I think you recognize Dave. Dave was one of the uh, keynote speakers yesterday, CEO of Redirect Healthcare. And uh, Dave, I'm glad to have you because you got a chance, while well, that portion of the video or that portion of the, uh, our session was recorded uh, by Dr. Thomas Sulo and Dr. Shaw, they have their own unique perspectives and, 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 and vision of uh, direct primary care. Um, they've been doing it a long time, but neither have been doing it as long as you have. <laughs> and so, so I, I think this is going to be fun. And while we're recording, we've got another 10 or 15 minutes uh, to just dive into direct primary care. So I thought maybe to just open this up and, and ask you a question out of the start, the starting gate. As you, as you listen to that, and, and I'm sure you've been in lots of conferences and lots of conversations about direct primary care, as you listen to what's going on out there and what you've experienced, what, what would you say are one or two of the most important things an employer can really understand about the power of direct primary care? Hmm. Well, the first thing I'd say is um, get clear on, your, on the definitions because there's a lot of terms being thrown around and direct primary care is just one of them. And if you look at one direct primary care, it's different than another, it's different than another, another and different than another. And uh, matter of fact, I don't even know that I really consider what we do as direct primary care, but it's the terminology that's been applied to us. Um, but the things that we were doing, we were doing before there was the term direct primary care. And I guess the word I'll focus on is the word direct. And I think what direct means is that it goes, that we go right to the employer, goes right to the provider. I think that's what direct means. And if you put primary care in there, then it means the employer is paying directly for primary care. But you could have direct cardiology, direct hospitals, direct contracts, if you will. And uh, so do we do primary care? Yes, but it's a small portion of what we do. And we do go direct, meaning the employers pay us directly. But we, all, we don't think in terms of the silo of primary care. We think in terms of the healthcare journey from signing up to renewal and all the stuff that happens in between, whether it's taking care of cancer and making sure it gets paid for to uh, so somebody's thyroid medication or allergy medication and making sure they pay a dollar and not $30 for it. And just making sure that all the lumps and, and, and the bumps and, the, and they're taken care of and all the obstacles in that journey are taken care of. And we always look at that journey with at least three dimensions, um, the, the clinical need, the money, and then the navigation or the logistics customer experience. That's our triple aim. And we tie them together with data. But we're thinking about the journey throughout the, the ecosystem of healthcare and all the dimensions of it. And then we happen to get paid directly by employers. So it might be healthcare, or it might be direct healthcare journey, yes, um, would be more accurate. So direct primary care, I would ask employers to your question um, to just get really clear on what it means. And, and I think, and don't focus on the doctors, focus on the services that their people need including the, the navigation through the healthcare journey. And um, a lot of the, the direct primary care models out there are really are tend to be more doctor focused than they are um, company focused. 
right? There's two parts of it. Direct means the company's paying the doctor directly. Um, I wish that the whole direct primary care movement was a lot more focused on the client and the and the people they serve than on the, the business model. I do agree the business model is better. But anyway, th that's my soapbox two cents for employers. Well, I I was, uh, as, as I was just listening to you, and, you know, I know where this, this conference was born uh, based on the discovery of the very unique things that the NUCA plan uh, is doing or doing in, in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And then the next question that was asked was, how do we get the rest of America engaged in this? And, and how do we do that? And who, who, are the, who are the people that are the opportunistic ones to be able to tell this story? And I know that, the, the, that when the folks at NUCA found out what you were doing and the uniqueness, and I think you, you, vert, you, you also on the other side of that prompted the opportunity to do that, the speech that you did yesterday, as you think back on the speech that you gave yesterday and and maybe some of just more focused on what what we're talking about here. And, and while I get I love your definition, by the way, of what direct means, let's just focus on that. Solving the problem for the customer or helping the customer get what they need. What did you maybe leave out or if you could have a minute to, to, to say, hey, I'd like to add this piece relevant to this that, that you haven't mm -hmm. said already. What would it be? You know, so first off, the um, when we look at the NUCA system, I absolutely love it. But I'll, what I love most about it is the philosophy behind it. The philosophy is so right on thinking about customer owners and thinking about just getting rid of the fee for service and the the uh, insurance parameters that are put on, that's put on healthcare today. It, it couldn't be more correct that the entire healthcare system today is being driven by insurance companies and their lexicons and their billing practices, including the EMRs, the electronic medical records. And if you want to participate in it, you have to participate in it. Um, so the, the part that I might've left out if I was going to dig into it is to give more encouragement to the employers that you're not going to be able to copy the new system. Copy the philosophy, want the philosophy, create vision that's similar, but don't think you're going to be able to copy it this year or next year. Maybe someday without a lot of help from our government, a lot of help, a lot of laying down by the insurance industry or the hospital industry or the drug companies, but I don't think they're going to lay down and let businesses do the NUCA system. So what can we do instead? We'll take the philosophy and start building the parts, but think about it when you're building the parts, think about integration, think about handoffs, think about the entire healthcare journey, not just the telehealth part, the virtual part, not just the population health, not focus on how the population health works together with the telehealth. And how does that, that how does that work together with the, the brick and mortar primary care or work together with the chiropractors or physical therapists or labs? It's about the integration of the parts so that people move through that journey. And that's a part that NUCA does really, really well. But they have a diff and they have a population that with, with some government funding that helps them with that. And uh, and the business owners aren't going to have that. So uh, the encouragement I give them is you've got to build your own system, but it's going to start with your mindset first. And um, a point that I would have really doubled down on if I had more time is this concept of teamwork um, in a company. The C CFO's job is to make sure the numbers work. Nothing else. Not to, the, the HR's job is to make sure that people understand how to use the plan. 
And the CEO's job, and it's nobody else's job but his or hers, is to figure out the strategy. How do you want to use your health plan? What kind of ROI are you going to demand from it? Are you going to use it to decrease injured workers and workers' comp costs? You're going to use it to attract executives. You're going to use it to have great job ads to say free health care, entire family, or just you. So it's really about that teamwork of making sure the money works, CFO, making sure that the communication is happening between the people, the HR, but the strategy's got to lay with the CEO. And I would say that the biggest challenge companies are having with healthcare is the CEOs do not want to own the strategy. They want to hand it off to CFOs or HR, but I'll let you speak to that. You've been in front of um, so many um, CEOs that maybe maybe you've met some that aren't like that, and I'd love to hear about how you, how you found them. Well, you know, I, I'm going to, Martin, I'm going to let you jump in on that too. I mean, you, you've you been experiencing a lot of that in your in your career. I'm going to, you tackle that first. I'll follow you up. Well, it, unsurprisingly, uh, every kind of factor that would mitigate against us being able to change anything is, uh, is prevalent. I'll tell you, the thing that's killing me is, or really impressed me is, uh, excuse me. Um, you got the brokers and consultants are in bed with the bukas and everything, every idea that you would bring, I've brought to a, any organization of any size is poo-pooed and, and deconstructed. And, you know, it's just total absolute opposition to changing anything by anybody. Uh, I'm trying to do some work with, uh, a large broker, one of the larger ones, and all their, you know, they've hired people to deal with health, the healthcare aspect of their practice, and they're all VUCA people, you know, and they've, they've migrated over to the, to the consultant, and, you know, it's just, it, you're basically trying to knock down the iron curtain here, um, but it can be done, you know, it, it's just going to take a lot more effort, a lot more time from a lot more people, but well, I appreciate I appreciate your thoughts, and I you know I I too have experienced a, a lot of interesting conversations with CEOs over the years, and I I don't even, I don't know how many hundreds or like probably thousands over the years near nearly four decades of it now. Um, the truth of the matter is is that I think more today than ever, they are very seriously mindful of um, we we need to make change. But I also think in that exact same sentence, they have a tremendous fear of how, how do I get across the bridge from where I've been and this, this you know, Kool-Aid that I've been drinking. Is Kool-Aid even still around? Can you say that anymore? I don't know. The, the Kool-Aid I've been drinking, and I need to come across this bridge over to this new way of thinking. And, and I think their biggest challenge that they're faced with is the process how how do i how do i change that thinking to get across the bridge because i can see the promised land over here on the other side i hear what you're saying to me i hear what you're saying that that primary care and and guiding me through uh this pathway and helping my employees to become more powerful is it i get it i agree it's a it's a huge story it's it may it even resonates with me personally um but the biggest challenge I have is I need my employees to be focused on what they do, making money for my company. And if they're disrupted, if they're scared, if they're, if they're confused, they're going to be less effective. Maybe they'll even be more sick. They'll be frustrated with me. They're going to be pissed off and I'm going to have a zillion mental health claims. I don't know. 
but they all I know is they it's disruptive. Yeah. And then the next question that that they they ask as they look at their HR director is, can you make this happen? And because these HR directors have been tasked with the miraculous possibility of how do I help people move along that bridge or else become comfortable in this new thinking. So I think I think it's a combination. I think today they have become the CEOs have become extremely frustrated with cost. They know that it's messy. They know that they're being taken advantage of. They are hearing the stories everywhere they turn um, about uh, the lack of transparency and costs overall, not just just in the direct primary, but in the world of the surgical world. They're they're frustrated. Um, I think this message um, is so important to be to be blasted out to the marketplace. And, and listen, having been a broker for 40 years, I would love to say that my brother and sister brokers are awesome and, and as I crazily idealistic as I am and want change and want all this new stuff. But when you cut into my commission by taking that Buka commission away and you eliminate my um, Range Rover and my golf uh, game and my lifestyle because you just cut into my, my, my compensation deeply and or you've made me go to work at a level that I've never experienced before because I've been relying on the bukas who are the gods of the industry and the underwriters and everybody to make all these decisions. Here's the changing factor. I, I think the most powerful changing factor, Dave, to your question the CEOs have to have the courage to say to their broker, I am no longer paying you a flat fee. I'm paying you based on performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd add to that. The CEOs that we work with that are highly successful, they have, they've shown the courage to say to their HR managers and their CFOs, um, this is what we're going to do. Figure out how to make the numbers work. This is what we're going to do. Figure out how to communicate it. But we're going to do this because I have a strategic reason to do it, not just about money. It could be about recruiting and retention and workers' comp costs or productivity or something else. But it's that courage to take ownership of the vision of what the healthcare system or plan they're creating for their company is going to do for the company. That's a vision thing. That's not a money thing. That's not a plan thing. And there's no buka that's going to help you with that. And, the, and I, I know that any CEO that does that, any CEO who does that in America today can make healthcare so affordable for their business, for their company, that they will want to provide it for free to their employees because of the free market advantages it gives them, the competitive advantage it gives them regionally or nationally or maybe even globally, depending on where they, where they work. But any CEO that wants to do that can do it today, but doesn't mean they all believe it and doesn't believe they all want it yet. Yeah, you know, I think I, I think we're I mean, you, you've been at this and offering this kind of an, a, a, uh, uh, an opportunity for eight, 10, 15, 14 years. I mean, in your mind, you've been doing it a long time, right? I mean, you've been at this yeah. for a long time. I, 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 uh, I spent the first 10 years of my my uh, time in the United States from Canada just believing that I was the only person that couldn't do math. I thought I was the only person that couldn't figure out how to make health insurance work for my people with a $1,000 deductible when they only had $200 in the bank. 
like as a Canadian, I just did not get how the math worked. And it, after 10, it took me 10 years to, real, to, to come to the conclusion that it wasn't me, it was the rest of the country was, was just not really thinking logically. Um, and when I did that, I, I, I just said, okay, I gotta make this work for my employees, my company only, I'm not thinking about anybody else. And what I really did is I copied what was already happening in my family and how we took care of people. My wife's a family phys family physician. And I just took care, I just what reproduced on a, on a self-funded plan when I only had 54 people back in 2007, 2008, which was ludicrous back then. But we, but I thought we had the advantage of, we knew how to run healthcare because we were healthcare clinics at the time. We still are. And we also were helping our neighbors and our family back in Canada and our family here in Phoenix and our friends here in Phoenix. And we just saw how efficient it could be. So I just retro-engineered what we were already doing for my, for family and friends even out of the country, and I just retro-engineered for my own 54 families that I was that I was uh, I felt responsible for. Again, that's a very Canadian thing to think as a CEO. Strategically, I want to take care of every single one of the families that work for me because I will gain a huge competitive advantage over Honeywell across the street who's stealing all my best employees because they have a $500 deductible and I have a $1,000 deductible where I'm going, and I'm going to 1500 So it was very strategic of me to say, I've got to figure out a way to take care of 100% of my employees' families and, uh, and they don't have any extra money. They don't have any money in the bank, so how am I going to do it? That's not with a, you know, I'll pay for you, but you got to pay for your family. That doesn't work. Or you got to pay a thousand dollar deductible if anything happens. That doesn't work. Even you have to pay a $25 copay to see a primary care doctor. They don't have that. And they can't take time off work because they couldn't afford the, uh, they, they couldn't afford to miss the, the few hours in a paycheck. So those are the constraints that I was dealing with when I was building our own system and never thinking we we're going to commercialize it. Never think I was even going to tell anyone about it because I had such competitive advantage in my business. It totally shut down the American Expresses, Honeywells, Motorola's, the banks in my city from taking poaching my best employees. Like I just shut it down. It just was never going to happen again. And it didn't. Um, it was several years later that we turned it into a company called Redirect Health today. So that was 2013-14. Yeah. Well, you've been at it a long time. By the way, Mark, uh, Dr. Mark, welcome. Glad to have you. We, uh, we're, we're, uh, you haven't had a chance to meet Dr. Berg, I don't think. You guys could meet virtually momentarily here and, and uh, say hi. Uh, hey, Dave, Mark. Uh, Mark's over hey, in Colorado. Unless, unless you've moved on me, you're still over in Colorado, right? Yeah, I'm still down here. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. So he, he's just up the road from uh, Phoenix and, and uh, uh, Mark, the question that you came into, obviously we were talking about, you know, your, your previous um, comments and Dr. Shaw's previous comments. And then we were just reflecting on the conference yesterday and some of the, the thoughts from uh, what we've learned from uh, uh, the NUCA system and, 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 and being that you're, portion was was pre-shot i'm just curious if you if now that you've listened to some of this and you've been involved in some of the conversation and, and as we're talking about to this last point what's the real message to the employers how 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 do you how do you really get through to them how do you really get through to the ceos i know you've been at this for eight years now ish and maybe a little longer but i know it's at least that long yeah um what do you think is the most resounding message to the employers from your perspective? Um, 
here's what's really, from my perspective, um, I have never talked to a CEO that you explain what we're all talking about and you go through the math of how to run a healthcare company, right? Because once you explain all of the concept to them, they're like, that's awesome. How do you stay in business, right? It, very, it, it becomes a very, you know, financial conversation with another CEO. Um, and it, I, I've never had that conversation with a CEO that says, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Thanks, but no thanks. They always say, here's my broker. Can you talk, you know, let's get HR involved and let's get the broker involved. And here's where the train runs off the track. HR looks at it and goes, I've got a thousand employees. And if I disrupt this, it's going to make my life hell, <laughs> right? So uh, we're not, we don't want to do that. I don't care how much money you're saving. Um, it's going to make my life miserable. That's where, how they interpret it. And then the, and, and the broker, unfortunately, um, depending on where their motivations are, which I never know, can be all over the board. But at the end of the day, if you happen to cut into their commissions and how they make money, it will determine on how they present the story to the CEO and they will say, um, we've evaluated this and uh, we just don't think it's the right timing right now. And, you know, it's, it's a new concept and, you know, they're still understanding it and they're still learning how this works. And, you know, we're not really sure how, how the savings are going to actually be generated. And so it's going to cost you an extra, you know, $600,000 this year. And they will do everything in their wheelhouse because they themselves don't have the education to, exp to, to, to or maybe the energy to want to restructure an entire plan. So I think the biggest, you know, thing for me that I've learned so far is, you know, I think to, to, to David's point, once you have a CEO that takes a position and says, go figure it out, it's not an option of whether we're going to do this or not. It's we're going to do it. Go figure out how to do it. Once that happens, some really special things occur because it forces the broker or the consultant to think differently. It forces the HR person to stop thinking about what you're not going to do and how are you gonna do this? And what happens in year one and year two, every single HR person that we've embedded this in has said, I've never had an employee come to me and tell me thank you for this benefit. Thank you for taking you know, this option. I've never had a CEO looked at us and said, well, we've just spent $500,000 and you only saved me $700,000. Like this isn't worth it to me. We've never had that occur. We've actually had the alternative occur where we'd say, listen, we charged you $500 this year, $500,000 this year, but your claims and your medical loss ratios didn't reflect the savings that we think because we need adoption and it might be a two or three year strategy. We've never had them leave us because there were discrepancy in pay, you know, or, or cost, because they started understanding the value of retention, recruitment, days off of work, days missed from work, uh, employee satisfaction, a true benefit. Like, it's not any longer about the money. Um, so I know that's a long-winded answer, you know, Bill, but my experience with these CEOs is once they get the buy-in and they give the directive to their C-suite, and they just say, go figure it out. 
I've never had one of them say this is horrible in year two or year three. And we, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm so hesitant to say this all the time, but we, we have like 99% retention of our companies. The only reason we lose a company is because they went out of business. Well, I, I'm going to ask, this is being taped and it's going to be an interesting long-term or what we do with this piece of the tape on the next piece that I asked, but it, it's, it's a pretty loaded um, arrow to stick in the forehead. Um, do you believe Dave and Mark Martin, I'm, I'm aiming at us. So I'm going to let them answer first. There are many companies that believe that the day of the broker or the day of the traditional broker is over. That legitimately believe it's over. Now, there are many big companies. I mean, I live here in Utah and, you know, and Select Health has created an entire divisions of their company that don't really need a broker. They really literally can go out and get their own, their, their own business. They control 62% of the market. They humor brokers and say, well, you know, we like us to bring you stuff. Or we like you to bring us stuff, but we—the truth is—they really don't need them. And there's many environments that are like that. So, due to the fact that whether I want to admit it or not, the day of the broker is changing. Um, do you believe that? Number one, uh, Dave. Simple question: Yes. Do you believe the mm -hmm. day of the broker is changing? I think that I believe the day. I'm certain of it. Of the traditional broker day of selling the bukas is it's a uh, it's a die it's it's going to die. Okay, and I Mark. It's going to it's going to. So yes, I think Mark, you agree? A thousand percent. And okay, yeah. so that so that being true, uh, Martin, I'm going to assume you're saying amen with me. I, I believe I believe that true too, being a broker. So, but there is a, there is a role for those people, but it's not being a traditional broker. So I, I'm going to put that right. caveat in there. And that's the point, David. It's it's not that the brokers are going to go away. It just right. means that they're going to have to. Um, they're, they're going to have to recreate themselves on what that means. Um, yes. The days of, uh, well, we've took your company to market and here are the four proposals that we have in front of you. It's not which ones, the, it, it, it's you're gonna pick one of them. It's not, yeah, I don't like any one of those. It's here are the, here's, here's Humana, here's Anthem, here's Cigna, and here's United. Uh, pick one. I think those days are gone to where you're going to have to brokers are going to have to get more creative and understanding. You might have to unbundle a lot of these things and bring in the best of breed components. You're truly going to be more of a consultant than just a broker and, and get a commission for presenting four plan designs that were carved out by, you know, your representatives at the, at the insurance carriers. So I, there is always going to be a need for a broker consultant. I just think in the traditional sense of, not having to do a lot of work um, and get a massive commission check is those days are really, really short. And Mark, I'll add to that. I think to the brokers that'll be successful, do exactly what you say. They start bringing together best in breed services, but they figure out a way to integrate them and make them work together well so that the entire healthcare journey works. Um, and I think they're going to be challenged with that, but the ones that can adapt and learn fast, They'll, they'll get it and they'll, they'll do very well because those are the same people that when that stops working and they have to do something different can now adjust to the new adaptation that's required. So yeah. we're only talking about the first step. I agree with you hundred percent, Mark, that's the first step. But if we agree that at some point 
we're, we're going to see the employers out of the healthcare insurance game and people are going to go buy their own plan somewhere. What are the brokers going to do then? Um, what I would tell you is that there's still going to be a need for somebody to make sure that the healthcare works with whatever insurance somebody might buy in the individual market or from Amazon, who knows where they're going to buy it. I just don't see uh, employers being the ones that are paying for the health insurance uh, forever. I just don't see it happening. To, to your point, really quickly, we have a lot of large clients as well, and we have a lot of you know big national brokerages that we work with. I've had more conversations about brokers saying their clients are moving to ICRAs and doing HRAs, but the one thing that's constant is us. They're like, they're going to move to an ICRA, but they don't want to get rid of peak med. They want peak med. That's, that, is, that is what we're giving them. But we're going to do an ICRA. We're going to do a defined contribution. And the employees, they can go do whatever the hell they want with that, you know, 500 bucks or 400 bucks. But we've checked our boxes as an employer. We're no longer liable for those fees if we yeah. didn't offer it or they didn't provide it. And we just did a MEC as an example. So a lot of these big employers are checking out of the insurance world or the, the healthcare world and just saying, we're going to do an ICRA and we're going to give you money. Mm -hmm. But what we will do is we'll pay for peak med for you. That's the benefit we're offering. Everything else is on you. Go do it. Yeah, they're smart. I mean, that's a, that is a very logical thing to do. I think it's so illogical to continue to work with the traditional way it's being done today. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take the last minute. I'm getting pinged on my phone that we're getting, we need to wrap this up, but I'm going to take the last minute and just say this to everything you guys have said. And this is that take version to, to the brokers. Um, you have heard this now from two organizations that have product availability to brokers. They work with large companies. They work with brokers. They work in this healthcare industry and have committed their lives to it. Their entire, literally their entire lives to it. The message here in, in my mind to the broker is that the world you have known is changing. The world that I started working in in 1983 is not the same world I work in today, and nor it has been for some, nor has it been for some time. So the, the message of change is upon us, and it's upon us all to become more efficient, more productive more interested and inclusive with each other to understand the power of collaboration. Uh, we've been using this term of disruption and disrupting each other and fighting against each other for the crumbs falling off the table. Mark, I loved your comment. The employers are sick of it. They're employers want out. They want to go to these defined contributions and the day of the defined contribution, the day of opportunity is changing big time. So guys, brokers, Ladies, gentlemen, um, get clear about this message. You're hearing it from really important people that are involved in this every day of their lives and see this message. So thank you for this session. It's gone a little bit different direction than, than direct primary care, as we called it or I titled it. Um, but awesome. I'm glad we did. Um, and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And we're going we're gonna to sign off and move to the next session. See you guys. Thanks. All right. See you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome, everybody, to our follow-up to that presentation. I'd love to invite you, uh, any of you that are uh, desirous of coming in and being part of a, and a continued conversation, to unmute yourselves. And to uh, you certainly can 
turn your camera on if you'd like. Um, but either way, we'd love to have you participate in just some follow-up conversation. We've had a, uh, this session now a, a couple of times yesterday as well as once earlier today. And I've had some really interesting, lively conversation um, about lots of things uh, that are both relevant to direct primary care as well as uh, what we believe our employers are looking for, um, what, what we see the future looking like. So for any of you that would like to jump in on that, uh, we'd love to have some more conversation with you. And, and I was just thinking, um, uh, Martin, it might be fun uh, since you're off mute and right there smiling at me. Um, our last session was an interesting one um, that I think was uh, timely. And, and I don't know what some of the rest of you do that are on the, on the uh, call here with us or on, the, uh, on this session. But we were talking about brokers and we were talking about the uh, unique changes that might be existing in the broker world. And, and I'd, like to, I'd like to just start this conversation a little bit and then maybe just take off on that a little bit deeper into the weeds. First of all, I think we all acknowledge that this direct primary care model, regardless of who's offering it, I mean, Peak Med is awesome and 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 uh, Dr. Uh, Mark's here with us um, and just got done presenting along with a number of other vendors, uh, Redirect Healthcare uh, um, uh, and, and Dr. Shaw's company, uh, as well as many others are participating in the space and others around the country. I don't even I don't, I don't even see them as competitors. I see them as collaborators in this overall cause. Right. And I think you agree. Um, but having said that we're just in love with them and acknowledge that what they're doing is extraordinary and different. Going a little bit deeper into the weeds on this, this change that we need to be mindful of. You know, I, Martin, I, I think it would be fun to just sort of banter a little bit back and forth. And rather than take shots into the broker community and kind of beat up some of our brothers and sisters and even ourselves at some level, you know, it's sort of a, we're hitting ourselves with a hammer on the hand, right? And what we mean by that, for those of you that are participating, the, the last session opened the door of, you know, the world of the world is changing and the world of, of employers' choices are changing and the world um, of brokers uh, is changing. Uh, bottom line is everything in the community, everything in our medical community is changing. And where I'd like to go a little bit farther into the weeds, Martin, and I think it'd be fun. I'd just love your opinion on this and anybody else who wants to jump in on it. What does a broker do today? Where does a broker go today to get educated? I mean, okay, there's a Captain Obvious question. You could come to the Aspirational Health Congress, you're right, you know. But I mean, what 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 is what is the broker that's looking at this this challenge that the CEO is laying on the table? Fix this, or I'm going to go to someone who can, or I'm going to get out of healthcare. And so, so some of you know, that's really what we were talking about last time was, hey, if you can't fix this, I'm going to change the way that I buy healthcare. I'm not buying these group plans anymore. I'm going to go to an ICRA. I'm going to go to a defined contribution. I effectively now am whatever, paying each employee $500 a month. And I seriously don't care what you do. Go do your own thing. 
And, and that was where we kind of got prompted to last time. But what, what does a broker do in your mind? Where do they go to educate themselves a little bit more? What are your thoughts? Well, I was incredibly fortunate. Uh, I, I talked about the history of how I got into this business about five or six years ago. I, I had the great good fortune to meet Daryl Moon, who's the CEO of Reliant, who's one of the, uh, you know, basically put this whole thing together. And uh, Daryl, of course, has, has a what I consider to be the best uh, true wellness program uh, that's available in the United States right now. And, um, got a relationship with him. He introduced me to some like-minded providers, integrated musculoskeletal care, uh, medicine, you know, there's a whole network of, of disruptors uh, that are, are trying to make inroads into the, into the monolithic VUCA system that we've got. And uh, met a, uh, Dr. Brian Klepper. And uh, Brian is a uh, incredibly knowledgeable guru about U.S. healthcare, and he's got a uh, listener called Healthcare Hackers, and there's about, geez, I don't know, there's probably about a thousand providers, brokers, physicians, it's just a, a you know, cornucopia of uh, healthcare experts, and uh, a lot of very interesting uh, ideas and, and products and concepts are always being introduced or posted on, on that, and I've learned a tremendous amount that way. Uh, you know, it's, I've just been fortunate and, uh, there's, there's just, there's, there are really expensive chronic problems that people suffer from that can be uh, treated on a primary care level, on an enhanced primary care level. Uh, but Brian calls it full continuum risk management. And that's, I think that should be the true goal of, of primary care or healthcare delivery. And uh, patients can be treated and, and, and a lot of special, a lot of, of time and effort and money that's being uh, spent on specialty care can actually, those same conditions can be treated much more effectively and inexpensively on a primary care level. And you combine that with what NUCA, the, the real unique thing, and, and Nuka's doing so many unique things, but to me, the thing that really stands out about what they're doing is 85%, over 85% of what Americans spend on healthcare is to treat conditions resulting from poor lifestyles. We are literally, by our behavior, killing ourselves. The biggest healthcare problem we have as a nation is obesity. And there, that's a deeply psychologically rooted problem. And NUCA is actually employing best practices of behavioral change where everybody in the, in the clinical, primary care clinical setting is, in, is trained in best practices of behavioral change. They're, they're, there's a, a psychological aspect to the healthcare they deliver. And over a period of time, they're able to help people make the changes they know they need to make in their life to, to have better healthcare. And that's the real crux of, of what's wrong with Americans. We, we are incredibly affluent and we've gotten sedentary. Uh, you know, 60, 70 years ago, you had a much higher percentage of Americans that were uh, engaged on a daily basis in vigorous physical activity just to conduct a life, just to make a living. You had farming, you had manufacturing, you know, life was tough. 
and uh, much tougher than it is now. And, and today we're sedentary. And, uh, most of the work we do is is mental, uh, and we're we're fat and we're sick, and uh, we've got to attack that. And and that's NUCA combined with these other services that I'm aware of, in my opinion, are the way to change American healthcare. And uh, you know how that works out is is a work in progress, to say the least. But, well, it, cer- it certainly is, and I, I think, you know, it's um, w- what's been done here at Aspirational Healthcare. Um, I would encourage all of you to get to know the Aspirational Health organization better. Um, one of the things I, I, I know that this conference has done for me, Daryl and I have known each other, Daryl Moon, who's helped or, or really created this, has, it's come from a labor of love of interacting with the um, shiniest tools in the tool shed, you know, or we, we all, we know organizations that are on this conference that are participating in this conference that are some of the coolest, most efficient uh, models of delivery in their specialty in the industry. Uh, I mean, what Dr. Mark is doing, he's doing amazing things for large employers. Maybe even some of the rest of you on this call that I don't know. Uh, redirect, uh, NUCA, of course, and the influence that they're having, Inter- uh, IMC. Uh, I mean, we, we have organizations that can walk into an employer and literally by contract, lay a contract on the table and guarantee the reduction of costs up to a certain amount, um, guaranteed in writing, or we'll write you a check for the difference if we don't hit our mark. Uh, they're, they're, they're completely performance-driven. We have organizations that are participating here that have the ability to just destroy PPO and HMO contracts in terms of what kinds of discounts they get out of uh, um, reimbursements for surgeries. The the shiny tools are in the shed. The question is, is how do we bring and collaborate some of those together as a broker? How do we use those tools as a consultant to help serve the employers that are are watching this call? Uh, I think the real message is uh, to those of you that are employers that are participating we're listening we hear the voice of the ceo we hear the voice of the cfo we hear the voice of the hr director who is saying help us uh, give us something different what we need from you is we need the we need that we need to understand where you are we need to understand that you've actually arrived at the hey i'm going to I'm going to compensate you based on performance. I'm no longer just accepting the fact that the, that the traditional plans of the past work. I'm no longer doing a transactional bidding program where it's just, let's look at the three or four or five companies that might be possibilities and, and then force them to negotiate against each other. And based on how much commission you make from one versus another, uh, will it, we're able to get an extra point or two. Not interested. We're interested in how we can really make a difference in healthcare. How do we really move the needle? How do we really engage our people? How do we really impress our, our people so that they can become the most efficient employees that they can become? They're healthy, they're happy, they're productive. And then therefore my customers that come to me, whether I'm making cars or widgets or whatever I do, that those customers are happy because they've interacted with employees that are awesome and happy and healthy and have affordable health care. I think, I think you employers, the sooner that you can help us get to that space by pushing and motivating and encouraging your broker 
to make sure that the tools that are being used are all the shiniest tools in the shed, all of the shiniest tools, not the traditional, I'm trusting that benefit in a box that's pre-negotiated and I've done traditional underwriting on it for 10 years in a row and I'm paying you a million dollar consulting fee because you're the brainiac that's bringing it to me. That system doesn't work. It's not working and it's fading fast. And so I'm sorry to the brothers and sisters that I may be offending if you're if you're one of the brokers in, in, a, in a big house. I've lived in the big houses. I've been in the big houses. I've done this now for come March. It'll be 40 years or four decades in my life. Uh, I've done everything from co-owned to TPA to reinsurance carriers to built self-funded plans all over this country. Um, I get it. And, and I understand the problem. Um, so I, I think as we, as we, we, we were going to shorten this one a little bit, unless uh, there's some questions that pop up, I guess I should look really quickly, make sure I haven't missed any questions. Um, it, I think we're going to cut this one a little bit short in that we've, we've taped a lot of information on the previous sessions. And for those of you that are with us, if you have anything that you would like to add or you have any questions that you would like to ask, uh, we'll give you that opportunity um, to do so. And, and if not, we, I, I'd like to just take the, the next minute or so and just express gratitude. The Aspirational Health Organization, the Aspirational Health Conference, is the beginning of something special. Uh, NUCA has motivated us to do and see things we haven't been willing to do and see, or at least thought in our hearts we could, but we didn't know the pathway. Um, many of the rest of you and many of the rest of the vendors have, have promoted and continued to push us. I am grateful for Daryl Moon. Uh, for those of you that don't know Daryl very well, Daryl's an, uh, an ex-hospital administrator with one of the biggest systems in our country. And uh, frankly, just couldn't do it anymore. And maybe I'll kind of bring it around full circle uh, in that the healthcare system, uh, from a cliff perspective, that you've got a lot of the, the, um, the insurance companies, the vendors, there's even brokers down there. There's a whole bunch of people standing at the bottom of the cliff and screaming up to the people, the employees on the top, or the people that are being served on the top and saying, hey, jump, 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 we'll save you. When you, break, you hit the ground, you'll break into a million pieces. But guess what? You can count on us. We'll put you back together. And you know what? They do. They're awesome at putting you back together because they're extremely well-trained and they do great things. But they ask you to only focus on your deductible coinsurance, copay, and network and don't even worry about the cost. It's okay that we might be charging 800% of Medicare for that service or 600% or whatever. Just don't worry about it because we have all kinds of things we have to write off. And, you know, it's just it's stuff we do. It's part of the business. And, and you as a consumer are up at the top of the cliff jumping. People are jumping. What if somebody were standing at the top of the cliff and said, don't jump, don't jump. Let us help you navigate your needs. Uh, organizations like Dr. Mark, who just was presenting earlier, and Dr. Shaw, who were presenting earlier, and, and Dave Berg from Redirect earlier and yesterday, uh, all of these organizations and others like them are providing solutions at the top of the cliff to say, don't jump. And oh, God forbid, if you happen to fall off and break, we're going to help you to get the very best care that you can by eliminating waste, providing the solutions, making sure you get top quality care and get you put back together at an affordable cost instead of some nebulous cost that you have no idea what's going on. 
Uh, I would encourage you to continue to participate with, with the appreciation, uh, or excuse me, with the uh, Aspiration Health Conference and Aspiration Health Messages. Uh, I think it's going to end up being a really strong educational port. I think it's going to end up being a place where collaborators of all kinds of shiny tools come together. I think that it's going to continue to be a strong entity to serve the community in lots and lots of ways. So I want to thank all of you. Uh, Martin, always thanks for your comments. It's great to be here with you and the rest of you, Dr. Mark. Uh, I've got you on mute there, but I, I, I'm so grateful for your contributions to all of this. And for the rest of you participants, thanks for coming. Watch the other sessions. Come back later and watch the videos later if you missed our session uh, last, our, our last hour uh, and then previously in the other days. Make sure you get some time with those. So thank you. And uh, we hope to see you again uh, aspiring to be a better shiny tool <laughs> and to experience more of what good opportunities exist. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Bill.